What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Stephen Lacey, the founder of PostScript Audio. Stephen has been the creative force behind many of the top podcasts about climate change and clean energy. And he also happens to be the executive producer of our show. He's been making podcasts about the energy transition since 2006. This was the dawn of on-demand audio and the modern clean energy industry, and he had a front row seat to both. He is the founding producer and host of The Energy Gang, the show where what it takes got its start. In this interview, I spoke with Stephen about the business and craft of podcasting. This conversation was recorded in front of a live remote audience in December 2020. What's it like being on the show now, now that you're on it? I'm nervous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always nervous when someone's interviewing me. It's weird when the tables are turned. People are like, when are you going to be on the podcast? I'm like, never. It's it's hard. It's really, it's hard being on the other side of the mic. This is yeah, easier. I, like my job we is were saying, We were saying, uh, it doesn't matter how prepared I am for anything. When I go on stage, when I press record, when I'm being interviewed, the physicality of being nervous always hits me. So Same. it's about managing it, not necessarily getting rid of it. Yeah, it, t- it usually takes me a good like five minutes or so to kind of settle in. Um, but this feels very meta to be interviewing the interview master. So I just want you to know how much admiration and respect I have for for you and everything that I've learned from you in this podcast journey. So so thank you again for saying yes. Thank you so much. Honored. Yeah. All right. Back to you and where you were born, which was Keeney, which is in rural New Hampshire. Your mom worked at a steel fabrication plant where she was the only woman in a company uh, of of men uh, for pretty much her entire time there. She worked her way up from a secretary to a general manager to a vice president and managed 60 men while raising you and your brother. Uh, What influence did your parents have on you? Both parents were very influential. My mom definitely gave me the a window into what it was like to be a really hard worker and was a role model for, um, I think, a, a very strong woman. And mm. she worked in a male-dominated industry, played 
um, a you know hard nosed manager role and a mother to um, a lot of steel fabrication workers and <laughs> worked tirelessly, really long hours. Um, and it was only really later in life that I realized I picked up a lot of my work ethic from her. So mm-hmm. having that as an example um, was really influential. My father was a forester, and then he went into real estate. And so being in the forest, I would go onto property and go, you know, look, he would help me name trees and we Mm. would go run the boundaries of properties in the woods of New Hampshire. And so that gave me an early exposure to being out in nature constantly. Mm. So the two of them uh, had very direct roles in in my interests and behaviors. Makes sense. Um, Your Interchange co-host, Shale Khan, said that you're one of the hardest working people that he knows and learning more about your mom and your parents, it, it makes sense why that is the case. Yes, and to my detriment sometimes. Um, yeah. Sometimes I can't let go of work. Yeah, yeah. We will We will definitely talk about that. I feel like a lot of us are feeling that way, especially in light of COVID. Um, as a teenager, as you described it, you were privately rebellious, which I love that description, but also very studious. And as you said, constantly outdoors. Who was Stephen Lacey in high school and what role did movies and the media play in your life at that time? Well, I'm a typical Gemini, so I have two personalities. (laughs) One is the professional personality that people in school, in high school and in college and parents would see. And then the other is the more rebellious side. Um, So a lot of people are surprised by that when they see me in my natural habitat, when the (laughs) mic isn't turned on or I'm not in a classroom. High school was really influential for me because that's when I got into filmmaking. I got my first access to cameras and first exposure to script writing. And we had a small group of people in high school who were really into um, making films and doing it very seriously. I mean, we look back on them now and they're not particularly good, but we had a management structure in place to actually create things. And we had regular meetings and we would plan them out. And so it wasn't to us like this fun little thing we would do off in the woods. We were really mm. serious about it. So mm. that early exposure um, made me super passionate about media and storytelling pretty early on. It's all it's all coming together. You graduated from Franklin Price University, which is a small university. Franklin Pierce. Oh, Franklin Pierce. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Franklin Pierce University, a small university in your home state of New Hampshire in 2006 with a degree in journalism with a focus in digital media production. You lived with your parents and commuted all four years of college and your peers saw you as very studious and kind of straight edge. Um, why, Why journalism and what were your college years like? Well, I was into the idea of fiction writing and producing films. And I initially went because I wanted to get into filmmaking. Franklin Pierce had just gotten a massive investment into a new digital media center. So they had all Mm. these huge editing bays, a lot of access to equipment, and they were giving freshmen immediate access to that equipment. So I knew I could build something right away. But what I realized is that I'm not very good at fiction writing. I'm good at story construction and understanding what makes a good story. But Ultimately, like the creative juices weren't flowing very well. And so I would look back at stuff that I was doing and I wasn't very happy with it. Mm. But I was really good at talking to people and Mm. I was really interested in news and politics from a pretty early age. And once I realized that, like, I could draw out other people's stories and Mm. use those same kind of techniques to develop uh, nonfiction stories and documentary Mm. style stories and interviews, that was really when it clicked for me. 
Um, while in college, you interned for Talk Radio News Service, where you covered congressional hearings and White House press briefings. You were only 19 years old, yet you had a pass to go basically anywhere in Congress, and you took advantage of it by attending every congressional hearing that you could. You told me that your most joyous moment of this internship was attending the correspondence dinner. What happened at that dinner, and how did this internship at 19 years old shape your career? I mean, it was really the window into everything else that came uh, because they, their business model required interns to do all the work. Mm-hmm. So it was really one person who directed an army of interns to go gather tape around Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. cut that tape and then send it out to news segments on talk radio stations. And then she would get on at the end of the day or in the morning and talk about what was happening in D.C. So mm-hmm. I got to go to all sorts of hearings all around Congress. I had just free reign anywhere I wanted to go. Um, and I, the, every day it was a new assignment, um, both at think tanks and on mm-hmm. Capitol Hill. So uh, I, got, I, I was under pressure to have familiarity with the tech. I had to get the tape right. I had to select the right tape and know how to cut it so that we could send it to the radio stations. And then at the end of that internship, I got this opportunity to um, attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner with the presidential motorcade. So part of my responsibilities was going to the White House press briefings, gathering tape there, and then going down into the tiny little studio in the basement and sending that off. Um, During the day that we went to the press briefing, or the White House Correspondents' Dinner, uh, I Got to sit in the White House all day, hang around with, you know, the camera people and the journalists. You know, many of these folks are real cowboys. They're they're like crusty cowboys who've been there for 30 years and they kind of sit around sharing war stories and uh, chewing the cud, so to speak. And I got I got this kind of backstage exposure to how it really works on the media Mm -hmm. side, which was super influential. At the end of the day, the presidential motorcade ran up and outruns the White House staff and outruns the press pool. And we got in the different cars and George W. Bush is a few cars up from me. And we pull up to the hotel and out we run and we're getting into the building. We rush through security and on my right is Condoleezza Rice and on my left is then um, uh, White House Chief of Staff Andy Card. And for me, it was exciting because I had exposure to these people with power, but mm. I got to see how they were interacting with each other. I got to see how the inside of the process worked. And it was like, oh, these people are just human beings, mm. just like anybody else. And so it actually took away the luster a little bit in, mm. a, in a healthy way. Mm. Um, and I, I, that, I think getting exposure to that early on helped me realize like the humanness to people, even people mm. in power. Mm. Based on that experience, what advice would you have for people who are currently interns and what advice would you have for people who are managing interns? Well, for people who are managing interns, you got to give them some responsibility. And mm-hmm. so over the years at the various jobs that I've held, any intern who's come in, I've thrown them into responsibilities. <laughs> and very often they do a poor job from the start, <laughs> but you have to have patience to be able to mm-hmm. walk them through what they're doing wrong. And more likely than not, they're going to do a better job and they're going to do um, dramatically better work. And so I just implore anybody who is hiring interns not to see them as, you know, um, peons who should Mm. be doing the most minimal tasks. They should Mm. really have some responsibility. And now we know you should pay your interns, too. So if anybody has interns, you should probably pay them. Yeah, including (laughs) including the White House. 
Yes, exactly. I did not yeah. get paid for that job, but I didn't care. <laughs> I mean, at that stage, people weren't really paying interns. Uh, for interns who are coming into companies, I mean, you, you obviously have to do what you're told and try to do it well, but don't be afraid of asking for more responsibility because very often, if you show that enthusiasm, people will give it. Mm, well said. Uh, following graduation in 2006, you got a job as editor and producer at the online magazine Renewable Energy World, where you were paid an annual salary of $25,000 to start your first podcast, which was called Inside Renewable Energy. Where did your interest at that time in renewable energy come from um, and 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 your your experience with podcasting like how similar different was that from the internship work now that I'm thinking of it I think it was it was twenty seven thousand dollars and uh, it sounds low now but it's probably more than most podcasters make so <laughs> good point good point so uh, it it was a really amazing experience because like the talk radio news service internship I was just thrown into it mm-hmm I had a real passion for the environment and environmental science. Even though, if I, even though I wasn't great at the environmental science part of it, <laughs> mm-hmm. it was something that was really interesting to me. So environmentalism had played an influential role, but I knew nothing about clean tech. I knew nothing mm-hmm. about the energy business. It was not something that was really on my radar. In fact, I was applying for you know local newspaper jobs. I was willing to report on basically anything. Um, and I applied to talk radio stations. I mean, really any kind of exposure that I could get. And there was a uh, small outfit in Peterborough, New Hampshire called Renewable Energy Access at the time. They had started in the late 90s called Solar Access. They were the first uh, true business publication covering the early solar industry and then later renewables. And the uh, CEO and the f- co-founder, Jim Callahan, who was a real mentor of mine, had launched uh, an early podcast and they had been experimenting with it and they needed someone to ramp it up and take it on full time. And so uh, I was like, okay, I think I can do this. I had been doing, I'd been the manager of the radio station in college and uh, I went in and they took a gamble on me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I had never made a podcast. I didn't know anything about clean tech, but they said like, we just need a young person who thinks they can do this and we're going to give you rain to do this. And um, once again, I was, I was thrown into the deep end and, um, that's how I got my start in clean tech. I had to force myself to learn every single day and really, you know, uncover very complicated subjects and communicate those quickly. Mm, it sounds familiar for, I think, every person who has come up in this industry. Um, five years later, you joined the Center for American Progress, uh, the progressive think tank, where you were hired as deputy editor, providing progressive commentary on climate science and politics. You were there for just under two years before leaving to join Green Tech Media, where from 2013 to 2018, you were editor in chief, during which time you launched both the Energy Gang and the Interchange podcasts. Um, why did you leave Center for American Progress and what led you to Green Tech Media? Well, what led me to Center for American Progress was this desire to talk more about climate change. Mm -hmm. So at Renewable Energy World, Mm -hmm. it was purely focused on the business of renewables, which was very attractive to me. I always liked the business lens, and I was comfortable there. But Mm -hmm. there was a broader climate conversation that was really starting to materialize in Washington, and I liked the idea of talking about climate politics and climate science. When I got there, I absolutely loved everyone at the Center for American Progress. And I had a great relationship with my boss, Joe Rome, at the time. But what I was a little concerned about, and ultimately one of the reasons why I left, was that 
a lot of that information gathering was seen through the lens of like uh, politi- political operas, op, op, operations, um, like how to operationalize information in service mm-hmm. of political ends. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really feel comfortable doing that. I mean, I still had this kind of traditional journalist um, feeling like I, I, I didn't like the idea of disseminating information for a political party. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I'm, I do fall on the left side of the spectrum. I was, I just, I, I don't really fall into any particular party, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, I left with the desire to go back into business reporting because mm-hmm. I felt like that's where a lot of the momentum was happening. And I had been following Green Tech Media since the early days. I mean, they launched in 2007 and they were immediately on my radar and I was constantly mm-hmm. reading them. And they had this really fresh take on mm-hmm. how the money was moving around, how deals were getting developed, how companies were growing. And that spoke to me. And that's why I moved back from sort of the political side into the business side. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, in your first year at, at Green Tech Media in 2013, you launched the Energy Gang. How did the podcast come to be? Well, Scott Clavenna, who is the, C- the former CEO and the co-founder of Green Tech Media, had been playing around with a podcast, and it was an interview show, and it wasn't quite landing. Um, and I joined, and we were both talking about, okay, what kind of audio can we do? He knew he was all amped up on podcasts, and he knew that I really wanted to launch a show as well. But we didn't really have a good idea, and so we let it slide for a little while. And then one day, I got a call from Jigger Shah, and... I was, you know, really nervous when Jigger called me and he's like, hey, I had listened to your podcasts for the last five years. That was a really good Do you want to start a podcast? (laughs) Hey. He just said it. You know, he just called me up and he's like, hey, I want to start a podcast. What do do I, you know, and we had talked about podcasts in the past, um, you know, at, at conferences, like we'd had some back and forth. And we both listened to the Slate Political Gab Fest, which was one of the first political roundtable shows that's still ongoing. One of the first shows I ever listened to, a really fantastic model. You have three experts, journalists who are talking about a particular subject, and you develop a relationship with those three people who are talking about what's in the news. And he was like, why don't we just follow that model? Why don't we talk about what's going on in the business world of clean tech or in politics and bring the three same co-hosts on and just see what happens? Um, we had been working with Catherine Hamilton at the time, who's our other co-host, on a bunch of grid stuff. So she was at the Gridwise Alliance at the time. We were developing a new grid edge business at Green Tech Media, and we had had a lot of relationships, and we were developing projects with her. And she was like the perfect fit because she knew – the policy world really well, and she knew the grid tech side of things. You know, she'd she'd been in venture capital in um, in she'd been a line woman early in her career. She knew the policy landscape very well, so she was just like the perfect, well-rounded person to bring on as the third co-host. And that's how it came together. It didn't land well at first, but then people developed a relationship with us, and that built over time. What did it <clears throat> What did it sound like in the early days? Well, it was terrible. We were all on Skype. (laughs) It was recorded on one stream. So instead of like three separate tracks, I mean, just really basic stuff that (laughs) seems so silly now, but we just recorded a Skype call together. I actually recorded myself locally, but Jigger and Catherine were on a Skype line. We were, you know, sometimes the VoIP line would like get really terrible and it just, the quality isn't good. But I cringe listening to myself. I mean, you can listen to all these. If you want to go back way in the feed, you can hear how different the show is. Um, 
I was so nervous. I had just been doing interviews for a long time. So I was nervous about being a host that had to have a take or mm-hmm. at least had to facilitate takes in real time. So I showed up and I had like these pages of notes that I wanted to read and I had these intros and the intros are way too long. And then like the points I want to make, I'm so nervous about Jigger coming after me that I like <laughs> have to have like three pages of rebuttals. And then over time, you just get more comfortable with the dynamic and you let the dynamic kind of mm. feed you into what you're going to talk talk about. And so that that took about a year to really evolve. But, mm. uh, the, you know, it doesn't sound very good compared to what you hear today. <laughs> Speaking of being afraid of Jigger coming after you, I learned something in preparation for this podcast that shook me, which is you and Jigger's your antagonism between each other is intentional. It stressed me out so much. And I was like, man, are they okay? And now I know that it was actually intentional. So I appreciate that, that secret to success of kind of like people like, you know, most people like it. I don't know. It was tough for me, but I'm happy to know that it's all with love. It is intentional and very much with love. (laughs) And at first, Jigger would have these long takes that we were unsure how to respond to because Catherine and I hadn't really developed the relationship with like, how much do we push back? Mm -hmm. And then... I, I just realized like, okay, every time Jigger makes a point, I'm just going to try to disagree with him. <laughs> and we, we we talked through that and it became very explicit. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the arguments back and forth are very real in real time. They're not planned, but we yeah. have an agreement that like, we're probably just going to say, no, you're wrong. Or here's, uh-huh. here's why I see this differently and try to create some kind of drama. I mean, then that's really what's important. The differences between the characters are what make people want to mm-hmm. listen. It's not just mm-hmm. the information. It's that you're saddling up to the kitchen table with people who have slightly different perspectives and you want to hear how those different Mm. perspectives um, uh, react to each other. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. 
Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. You were 22 years old when, as a result of all this podcasting, people started calling you the podfather, which I love, um, and asking to take pictures with you at conferences. What is it like to be a celebrity in our industry? Did you ever feel uh, like you had imposter syndrome early on? And, And if so, what was that like? The Podfather at like 21 years old, by the way. Uh, I have some pictures like on my Facebook. Yeah, no, I'm very young, and (laughs) and uh, uh, I have pictures that people took uh, that are like posted on Facebook or like they're they're buried away somewhere. I always felt like okay, I'm reaching people, but this is kind of a niche industry, and I never ever let it get to my head. I mean, I've always had perspective on that kind of thing. And and I listen, I'm a heavy, heavy listener to podcasts. So I understand what it means to have a relationship with someone you listen to all the time. So I never let that create an outsized impact on um, like how I felt about myself. It was very fulfilling because people would say, oh, I got a job in the industry because I listened yeah. to the show and and I use this information in my job interview or like you help me with my market research. That stuff mm-hmm. is so fulfilling and it will always yeah. be fulfilling. Um, you know, what's interesting is that like, I'm, I kind of have this niche celebrity, but it has expanded a bit because like the climate and clean tech world has expanded dramatically yeah. over the years. So the, my presence has changed a little bit, but I have n- never let that impact the mission or made me feel like, uh, too big for my britches. Mm. I'm, I've always keep kept it into perspective. Mm. Did you face feelings of imposter syndrome early on? Imposter syndrome, yes, definitely. Uh, that's that's the big part of the question. So all the time, I mean, I, I have the imposter syndrome in my entrepreneurship journey now, which we can talk mm-hmm. about, but early on, I was forced to sound like an expert on topics that I didn't really know much about. And the, the real art was like trying to figure out how to get enough information so that I sounded smart enough and could hang with people who were you know, truly immersed in this stuff. And mm. uh, that that imposter syndrome guided me. It was my mm. real motivation my, into getting better and better. Mm. Um, I have a great story about Ira Ehrenprice, who's a really famous investor. And early on in my career, he they launched like this massive fund and they had invested in Tesla. This was in 2006, um, mm. or maybe it was early 2007. And I'm on the phone with him and I'm trying to sound smart and ask him questions. And he's like, do you know how venture capital works like let me just tell you like how it actually works and he wasn't he wasn't being mean or anything it was just very clear that like oh i was a little out of my depth in terms of understanding how the fund worked and everything Mm and uh so i had moments like that and Mm -hmm. it made and it kind of kicked me down a couple notches but you just use it as your motivation Um, your, your co-hosts on the energy gang are Catherine Hamilton and Trigger Shaw, as you've said, what is it like to work with them? Um, given as long as you have worked with them, what do you want them to know? Oh, they are some of the most delightful collaborators and friends that I've ever had the pleasure of knowing and working with there. We truly have a magic relationship. Um, Mm. the reason why the show is ongoing and will, keep going for the foreseeable future because we all um, 
have a relationship that you hear on tape that exists in the real world. And we truly like each other. We truly respect each other. We have a good creative dynamic in that we know our roles on the show. And so it makes selecting topics and figuring out the direction of the show very easy. And the amount of time and commitment that they've put into it, I mean, it requires a lot of their time and I mean, I could not speak highly enough of the dedication that they have also put into the show. So uh, many years ago, someone heard one of our shows and I think we were all disagreeing and getting angry. And there was this rumor like, is the energy gang breaking up? And <laughs> and I was like, I, no, of course not. And that relationship is truly mm. special uh, and, and it will continue onward for the foreseeable future. Mm. Um, they're awesome. So I think the, it's a beautiful shout out to them. Um, two years after launching the energy gang in 2015, you launched the interchange with Shale Khan, who I think you perfectly describe as the Ezra Klein of clean tech. How did the interchange come about? Um, and what is it really like working with Shale? Someone wrote on LinkedIn the other day that, uh, the description of the interchange is the interchange is, uh, for those who, for those listeners who the energy gang isn't wonky enough and shale really likes to dig into numbers he really likes to be thoughtful about having long-form conversations about trends that he is thinking about and so he was then the head the vp of research at gtm and we were developing a new show for subscribers only behind the paywall and that worked well and we experimented with a few different variations but we realized that we could we could expand the audience dramatically and it was probably better financially to monetize the podcast publicly rather than just stick it behind a paywall and have a much smaller audience. Mm -hmm. So that was the the genesis of the show. And the the difference is that we're just we're truly trying to explore um in the most fun and wonky way possible, some of these big picture decarbonization topics. And uh, Shale is just an incredible mind. I mean, he has these conversations very often without notes. He can just very succinctly talk about topics um, without seemingly any preparation at all. And it's awe-inspiring. I mean, <laughs> I cannot do that. I have to have some bullet points. I have to do some reading. I have to like kind of Same. prepare my thoughts. Otherwise, I'll just derail off and, you know, go elsewhere. But he has, he just mm. has this succinct communication style. And uh, he's a dear friend too. Um, mm. You know, truly a, a very warm, remarkable person. So mm. I'm very lucky having co-hosts like that, co-hosts and friends on those two shows. Mm. Uh, two years ago, amid the booming podcast space, you left Green Tech Media to found Postscript Audio, where you serve as executive producer of both the Energy Gang and the Interchange, which are still distributed by Green Tech Media, as well as new independent shows like Matter of Degrees. How did you decide to take the leap to become an entrepreneur and start Postscript Audio? Well, it's a great time to be a producer because everyone's trying to figure out their audio strategy. And media companies are launching podcasts left and right. Organizations are realizing that the relationships that you create with podcast co-hosts are really strong. And so every, you know, a lot of people are listening to podcasts now and they realize how 
important and valuable they can be. So mm-hmm. we were just getting a lot of inbound requ- requests on mm-hmm. how do I make a show? You mm-hmm. know, what should I do? What's my strategy? And it was very clear that I had this level of production expertise and management expertise to launch our own production outfit. At that same time, um, in the 2017 to 2018 timeframe, there were dozens and dozens of other small shops like ours popping up, uh, many Mm. covering different facets, different types of topics. And so there's a reason for that, and that is because audio is such a booming um, medium right now. Mm -hmm. I really felt like we had a certain level of expertise to help launch new shows. I would definitely agree with that, given our experience with what it takes. You decided not to raise capital for PostScript Audio, which is now an eight-person team. You still only pay yourself a modest salary, hopefully more than $27,000, but uh, still modest. Why did you decide not to raise capital? And then what are the biggest challenges that you've faced in in launching the business over the past two years? Well, to be perfectly honest, the reason why we haven't raised money is because I think we're still figuring out the business model. And if I went to a venture, if, if event, if I I would not give me money right now. (laughs) And by that, I mean, I think we've shown like we have a very successful process in place. Mm -hmm. We've got some really great shows that I'm proud of, but we're still figuring out the exact direction of like what the totality of shows that we take on, what is that going to look like? Mm -hmm. Um, The business model is still varied in terms Mm -hmm. of how we fund shows. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're still, our production model is very much based on raising budgets and we're Mm not uh, focused a lot on advertising revenue right Mm -hmm. now. And so Mm -hmm. that can be a bit of a stop start industry. So we're trying to reorient the business to figure out how to get better recurring revenue, how to get some of our shows to even bigger scale um, and monetize those differently. And so I think in the next year or so, we're, we're, you know, we're in talks now about like how to reorient the company. So that's, I think that's the reason why it was just sort of having an honest description of, or an honest take and that mm-hmm. is we're still figuring it out. Yep. Um, the, the um, what was the other part of the question? Um, uh, oh, just the hardest parts. Well, the hardest parts are that all your faults are now everybody else's problem. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's intense, yeah. I mean, like you know, if you're 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 responsible for a lot of other people, mm. you mm-hmm. your your management style matters so much more. Mm-hmm. The stakes are much higher, and you have to constantly be re- reevaluating your vision. And having, you know, and pressing that internally and having other people press that. So, you know, I found it very difficult. Um, I think that that ultimately we've been able to execute given what we knew we wanted to do in the first two years. But mm-hmm. it's there's a there's a lot of things that you don't have to ever think about when you're just a manager within another organization. This all is resonating very deeply <laughs> with me um, and I'm sure with, with every entrepreneur. Um, uh, speaking of podcasting at scale uh, at PostScript Audio, you've developed custom audio campaigns for Fortune 500 brands, including GE, AES, most recently Google. Uh, What role do corporations play in the podcast world? uh, And what role do they play in your mind in addressing the climate crisis? Yeah, it's a good question. So the two, two answers to that. One is, 
a lot of the campaigns that we're doing are a great way to fund editorial series. So mm-hmm. many companies don't want to launch their own shows. So you can go and say, we can develop this limited run series, or we can do custom shows that we then put into other podcast feeds. And that's a very popular product. And in the clean tech and climate world, it's a product that's very successful because mm-hmm. a lot of the folks who are co- focused on that subject are not going to be turned off by a lot of the messaging of corporates. Mm-hmm. I mean, they may understand that it's an ad or it's a branded podcast, but it's it resonates very differently than, mm-hmm. you know, if someone's selling you socks or if someone's <laughs> selling you any other, you know, retail good. Mm-hmm. Um, so the because the relationship in podcasting is very unique with the host um, and people are really going to like if if they see something appear in their feed they're probably going to listen to it um i think that they play a strong role in the overall monetization strategy ultimately we want to use some of those projects to fund some of the bigger independent editorial projects in terms of mm-hmm. clean tech i mean i've always mm-hmm. believed from the very beginning one of the things that attracted me to this to business reporting was that companies were the first movers um you know, I, I think that there are a lot of uh, bad corporate actors out there that have tried to prevent the energy transition, but there are a lot of companies that have been at the forefront of making this happen. And it was so clear to me early on that uh, economics, business, and finance were really compelling arguments for the energy transition uh, that could break through a lot of the traditional political arguments. And so um, I strongly believe in the role of corporates in helping guide this transition. Yeah, agreed. Um, Over the past 12 years now, you have launched five shows that have collectively received over 11 million downloads. If you were to summarize the one thing based on all of that experience that people should know about podcasting, what would it be? Oh my gosh, so many. I mean, you have to have a plan, right? The shows that have, we've launched that have been successful, we've put a lot of thought into. We're not just mm-hmm. setting up microphones and saying, okay, we've got two people who are good at talking here, let's do it. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. a very clear plan of why you're developing a show, how is it going to differentiate from any other show, um, what is the role of the co-hosts, how is this thing going to sound, how are you going to integrate interviews? There's a lot of thought that goes into it, just like any other complicated medium. And mm. podcasting in general is accessible to a lot of people, which is one of its greatest strengths. But mm-hmm. it also means that a lot of people show up thinking that they're going to set up a couple microphones and it's going to work great and they're going to have a hit podcast and it just doesn't work. So any of the successful shows that we've launched have had months and months of work that go into them to figure out what it is, what are we going to do with it, and why is it going to land? Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, you, you are now an entrepreneur. (laughs) What have you learned about entrepreneurship since launching Postscript Audio? Well, uh, echoing my previous sentiment, it is extremely difficult because a lot rests on me and my idiosyncrasies and the responsibility that you have as an entrepreneur to members of the team and thinking about scale is also a challenge. Mm. Um, I very much am a creative person and I like to be involved in 
projects. And sometimes that can distract me from thinking about some of the bigger picture stuff. And I have to be able to manage those two things. Um, I think that's probably the case for a lot of entrepreneurs. And that's why, you know, you have people at companies who go from CEO into some other role because they realize like, oh, maybe I'm not CEO. Like I'm much better at running the engineering team or I'm much better at product development. And so I think that's what I'm grappling with is I mm -hmm. really like to be involved in the creative process. But I also know that I have to make all these bigger decisions. Mm -hmm. COVID threw a lot out the window. I mean, this the schedule this year has been really tough for planning. But wow. um, I suspect even in a normal world, that um, that tension would still be there. Yeah. Um, as far as you, you've seen so much of podcasting over the 14 years that you've been in it, um, how has it changed and evolved and where where is it going from here? The I mean, it's there's there's big money in it now and th the factories of podcasts into IP for Hollywood is really fascinating. And it means mm -hmm. that uh, all the big media organizations are launching podcasts left and right with the idea of turning podcasts into a hit Netflix series or some kind of film. And so at one end of the spectrum, podcasts are this really interesting experimentation tool where mm -hmm. you can at a fairly minimal budget compared to what it would take to develop a pilot series, test out an idea and then send it off to other creative agencies. Mm -hmm. So like that's one end of the spectrum and that's why a lot of big money is getting into it. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, there are m record numbers of podcasts being developed every year. Mm -hmm. And we now I think have a million, almost a million and a half podcasts um, that have been logged by Spotify mm -hmm. and Apple. And because the medium is so accessible, the recording equipment is a lot cheaper, and the distribution is very easy, um, there's a lot of noise out there right now. Mm. And so even if you're launching a show with fairly high quality and a good budget behind it, it's a lot harder to make a splash. Mm -hmm. So the big money folks are dominating the top Apple charts and they are mm -hmm. dominating listener attention. You have a lot of smaller podcasts that are making the space a lot more crowded and mm -hmm. shows in the middle market with like fairly decent budgets can stand out, but it takes a ton more money and a ton more time to make those shows stand out. We were benef we were lucky for with the Energy Gang and even with the earlier podcasts at Renewable Energy World, mm -hmm. we were first movers. So we got an audience overnight almost. Mm -hmm. And uh, what you find is some of the bigger podcasts that are just like talk shows have huge audiences because they were in it at, at the very early stage. And a lot of the shows that are similar to them don't have a big audience because it's a lot harder to break out. So mm -hmm. that's the biggest challenge right now. Um, mm -hmm. The strength is that a lot of people can get in it. And the drawback is that it's mm -hmm. harder to, to get seen. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm happy you've been in it for as long as you have and are taking it in the direction that you're going with PostScript Audio. Um, podcasting has been such a, a through line through your life and your career all the way through to your marriage. Uh, I know you met your wife through your podcast. Uh, tell tell me that story. Like, how, how did you meet? Are we at the meet cute now? We're at the, meet, the meet, yep. The meet cute moment? That's yeah. right, that's right. Uh, podcasts are a huge part of my relationship with my wife. We Back when I was developing my first podcast, my wife was uh, listening. To, she was she was at Tufts, and she was before listening to the show before we met. Mm -hmm. And she listened to the show while running, and um, she reached out randomly to to ask about internships or jobs in the space. And 
we had an email exchange going and I said, oh, well, I'm actually coming to Boston uh, for a conference. Like, let's meet up. And a friend came with me and the three of us had drinks and dinner and ended up staying out most of the night. And we really hit it off. And it was very clear that there was a spark there. But we went our separate ways and she went off to do great things in government and in the energy space. And we would trade some emails. And I think we have some, one email. It's like, hey, what are you seeing for lithium ion battery pricing? <laughs> and um, so that that was the relationship. And then we lost contact. And um, mm. um, in 2015, uh, the Facebook algorithm connected us. And we reconnected and started messaging. And in fact, I had a video of me on the dance floor uh, going kind of wild. And she just wrote in the comments, um, is it possible to fall in love with someone through a dance video? That's and <laughs> then we started uh, talking to each other. And I was like, oh, I'm going on another reporting trip in Boston. We should meet up again. And it was very clear from the start when we rekindled that relationship that like there was something there. And within within months i had packed up from dc and moved to boston and started our relationship and then we were married in 2017 it's the most romantic podcast story i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> well now she's really sick of hearing me talk about podcasting <laughs> but we'll always hang our hats on that lovely story uh, it's a great it's a really good story um, this June, you celebrated your first Father's Day as a dad. Father's Day came 100 days after quarantine, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to read what you wrote on Twitter on June 21st of this year on Father's Day. Sure. Yeah, this is fairly heavy. We're going from light to heavy here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Let me bring this up. Um, when coronavirus hit, I was in serious mental anguish. My brother had just died suddenly. I was struggling with being a new father. I stopped exercising. I stopped sleeping. I turned to alcohol. I would start my work days at 3 a.m. and work late at night. I became deranged. It was impossible for me to distinguish between small and big things. I couldn't let anything go. I was filled with tension and anger all the time. A therapist told me I was manic. He suggested I take lithium for the mania. This was all hidden from my professional life behind a microphone. Then the lockdown hit. I hunkered down with my wife and baby in a frenzied state. I had a clear choice. Do something about my mental health or face unknown consequences. It frightened me to think about how I would act in a state of lockdown, the way I was taking care of myself. No childcare, losing business, no leaving the house. A recipe for disaster, right? But then something happened. Somehow the confines of the situation created an opportunity for me to get my mind straight. The lack of choice, or the clarity of choice, was a blessing. I forced myself to sleep. My half-work, half-parenting days forced me to work more intelligently. I abandoned all alcohol and enhancing substances except caffeine. I slowly cleaned up my diet, and I created a regimented exercise routine. Totally simple and ridiculously obvious stuff, right? It's hard to describe the radical changes to my psyche I've seen over the last hundred days. I re-engineered my brain. I'm much closer to the person I want to be for my wife and little girl, the person that I know I am. It gives me chills hearing it. I feel like it takes a lot of courage and bravery to share something like that with yourself, let alone the world. What's it like hearing that now? Um, well, it's a reminder of how much work I had to put in and still have to put in during these really difficult times. Um, it's it's pretty emotional because I definitely became a person that I didn't expect to become. Um, I mean, the lack of sleep and the stress around having a new baby and um, 
just not taking care of myself was threw me in a completely unexpected direction. And it took me a long time to dig out of that hole. And then every week I, you know, had to come behind the microphone and put on the Stephen Lacey face that people know and hear. And that was very difficult. Um, I mean, it, I, it reminds me of the work that I still have to do, right? I, 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 I'm constantly striving in my personal life and even as an entrepreneur to put the work in to get closer to that person that I know I am. Mm. For someone who is where you were at your worst in that description, what would you want them to know? That it doesn't have to be this hard that you don't have to hold on to so many things. My biggest weakness is that I hold on to things so tightly and I let them, I can let them spiral. And that can often be a very good strength in an entrepreneur in that like, Mm -hmm. I really care about each and every detail. I have like a running list in my head of the things that I need to do. And I'm able to pick and choose from that list. But what happens and what happened during this period is that I just have a list of things, some many of which are not important, some of which are very important, and I can't distinguish between them. And so I need to constantly remind myself of like how to better prioritize because that is um, a big piece of that, – that inability to prioritize can be a big piece of how I mentally spiral. Hmm. I think it's such a common experience for so many people, and yet it's something that's often stigmatized and we feel like we can't talk about it. And I think one of your greatest strengths is your willingness to be vulnerable in a way that is relatable because everyone's facing struggles. And and to have somebody who you admire and respect share theirs is really powerful and meaningful. So I think on behalf of a lot of people, I want to thank you for being willing to to share. Um, The last question, of course for our high voltage round is as part of your your mental health, your physical health, um, exercise is really important to you. You used to do competitive powerlifting. You can deadlift 500 pounds. I recently started lifting during the shutdown. I'm deadlifting 135 pounds. So I'm curious what advice you have for me. <laughs> uh, actually, it's 600 pounds. 600? Uh, oh man, get these facts not right. Not now. That was a few <laughs> years ago. Uh, That's so amazing. I, and I should tell people, some people might confuse powerlifting with, uh, bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They are not the same thing. So it's lifting for strength instead of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, first of all, let me just say that strength training and just physical exercise has been so important for orienting my mental health. I mean, I know it's really cliche. It's one of the reasons why so many people in Silicon Valley talk about optimizing health. And there's, you know, there's often this like desire to get away from the, you know, grind yourself into the ground attitude and like take a step back and focus on your, your, your nutrition and your sleeping and your physical health, all that stuff works. And there's a reason why, even though it can sometimes be cliche, Mm-hmm. people are focused on it. So for me, it's been hugely beneficial. Some of that has taken a hit, particularly in the last like six months in terms of physical exercise because of the number of productions that we have going on, but it's always there mm-hmm. as a central tool. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I, I, I don't often talk about this, but the yeah, when I was competitive powerlifting, I um, 
deadlifted 600 pounds, squatted 500 pounds, and bench pressed 345 pounds. That's so wild. I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. So you're seeing a much different version of Stephen Lacey when, when all that was happening. But anyway, the physical exercise piece is so crucial, I think, to good performance. Mm. Um, in terms of advice for you, what kind, uh, What are your goals? I mean, are you are you looking <laughs> to deadlift 600 pounds? No, that, I don't think that's going to be possible. <laughs> but but like, I don't know, progressing like five pounds every time. And so, you know, this is I'm, I'm I have a estimated 166 total, but I haven't tried it yet. So well, it's really impressive. Maybe we should start a nutrition po- or a, 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 a weight training oh, podcast together. I'm into, we it. Can... I'm into it. Yeah. yeah, yeah I like it. Oh, that's also for five reps, five reps. I want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's great. That's really oh, good. <laughs> One of the things that's kept me healthy is outside of this door in this closet, I actually mm-hmm. have a gym that's been that's been built. I have a powerlifting gym like with with a ton of weights. Um, so that's really helped me during lockdown. Awesome. We are going to transition into our high voltage round. These are quick questions with about ten second answers. As you know, the first question is: If you were to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? But I don't want you to answer yet. I want to tell you that I asked Catherine Jigger and Shale what animal they think you would be. So I'm going to tell you all three animals, and then I want you to choose who you think oh. said each animal. Okay, so the three animals are like a it. badger, a wolf, and a dolphin. Jigger said badger. <laughs> Catherine said wolf. Uh, what's the third one? A dolphin? Dolphin, yeah. Shale said dolphin. You got Shale right. Um, so Shale said dolphin because you are very smart, kind of hyper, and you wake up early in the morning. Um, but Catherine and Jigger, you got flipped. Catherine said you're a badger, quote, for obvious reasons. <laughs> and Jigger said you're a wolf. You're very social, but also value your alone time. Yes. But what is I, your actual animal? I chose the lyre bird, which is an Australian bird that can mimic any sound. Uh, it can mimic any sort of machinery. It can mimic uh, other birds or animals and even sometimes mimic human voice. And the reason why I chose it is because to be a good interviewer um, and really just a good human being, you have to be able to mimic the other person in a way that gets them to open up. And mm-hmm. so I thought that was really appropriate. And I, I picked that. the lyre bird because we have a, my daughter is really into birds and we have a bunch of bird books. And I've always been fascinated by the lyre bird. Um, in her bird book. And so I thought it was, its its attributes were very appropriate for what makes a good skill set for an interviewer. It sounds perfect. You were the first and only what it takes liar bird. <laughs> um, next question is, if you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would probably be a ski bum working as a lift attendant and writing magazine articles. What kind of articles? About skiing or about action sports or about nature and like hiking and, you know, like an editor at Outside Magazine or something like testing out ski gear and, and working in the cafeteria at a at a at a ski mountain. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, my wife has been huge in in um, really promoting my success. And, you know, she has a, a, a lot of entrepreneurial bond. Bo- she has a lot of entrepreneurial bones in her body, and she gave me the opportunity mm. to exercise mine first. So I'll always be mm. grateful for that. Uh, in addition, I have two mentors: Scott Clavenna, the co-founder Who's of Green Scott? Tech Media, former uh, what who it takes is guest. an extraordinary human being, and then Jim Callahan, who is the uh, co-founder of, of Renewable Energy World. Both of them were very much 
like um, father figures to me and Mm -hmm. gave me extraordinary opportunities and were true friends who mm-hmm. gave me the best advice possible. So any the, the qualities that you would look for in a mentor, they both, they both had through and mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. When have you failed? Well, I know that everybody says I fail regularly and I feel like I do. Um, I mean, I think that uh, the, going back to, you know, the, the, the struggles with mental health, um, I feel like when I'm, if I'm at my depths and I'm unable to pull myself out of them, I feel like I'm, I'm failing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's a, not a good feeling to have. And luckily I've developed the tools to try to get beyond that. Um, we've launched some bad podcasts too. <laughs> <laughs> so we failed there. Uh, and, Sometimes when I'm not giving proper direction to people and I'm assuming that someone has all the information and I'm I'm not being as communicative as I could be, I think I'm I'm failing then and I really like I I really want to be a better manager and someone who is giving people the tools all the time to mm-hmm. do their best work and when I don't do that, uh it really makes me reevaluate myself. Mm-hmm. What is the best investment you've ever made? Definitely Sandy, my wife. Um, uh, I think for the reasons that I identified above, she's been extremely supportive. The other is um, the the powerlifting gym that I have over I- I- next to me. I mean, just we, we have like a thousand pounds of weights in there and kettlebells and all sorts of stuff. Um, you know, I- I'm taking up the entire basement with by putting my recording studio and gym down here. And so my wife has been very good about <laughs> give, giving up that space. But that is that is just absolutely crucial for maintaining my mental health. Mm-hmm. So the um, those those are the two best investments. They go hand in hand. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? That. I was a, that I'm a chill person. <laughs> Apparently I'm a badger. I used to think I was chill and uh, I I know that I'm very much not a chill person. Mm. And I really like I grew up with like very much ingrained in like kind of the counterculture movement. I was fascinated by the counterculture movement. I listened to a lot of um you know like Grateful Dead and I just thought I was this chill person and like in reality I look back at who I was over time and who I am now and I'm like very much a very neurotic person. <laughs> it's good to be self-aware. <laughs> if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Disinformation. Um, mm. I would change the vulnerability of human psychology. Mm. Um, uh, I'm really dismayed by the world we live in and how easily manipulated people are. And I would want to give us the more mental tools to not be so easily manipulated. Mm. One of those is podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Can I pick two? Sure. My brother who died just a few weeks before lockdown, who for two decades struggled with severe mental health issues and addiction issues. You know, we lived the opioid crisis firsthand in the darkest ways for many, many years. And uh, I, I just, he, there were a lot of times when I didn't see my brother or talk to him. And he always said how proud of 
how proud I made him, but I would just want him to hear how things are going because, um, you know, I'll never get to talk to him again. Um, I would also want to, my, my daughter, Acadia, to listen to this as well because I want her to know that I'm, the time I'm spending doing my work is to, to try to do some good in the world and help give other people the tools to create exponential change. Other people have cried on the podcast. I have not yet cried on the podcast, but this is the closest that I've come. Um, those are great, really, really beautiful answers. Um, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They can't adapt, they have the wrong business model, or they're blinded by their own hubris. If you really knew me, you would know? That there's another side to me. (laughs) Success is? Whatever you want to make it. Success is feeling happy and comfortable with yourself. Hmm. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... I would have taken an internship with Ken Burns. Um, Ken Burns lives in Walpole, New Hampshire. We have a connection to him and Dayton Duncan, who's his producer. And when I was young, I had the opportunity to do an internship with with him. If pe- Most people know him. He's a famous documentarian. And I got to go to his studio and see things and do a tour. And I had the opportunity to go be an intern. But I was young and wanted to make my own films and I was worried that I was just going to go serve him coffee and Mm -hmm. I let someone talk me out of it Mm -hmm. and I think it would have opened up a lot of other doors and I I think there's that's that's kind of a regret um I would have taken that opportunity Mm -hmm. ultimately I mean my pathway was great so I don't Mm -hmm. really regret it but I Mm -hmm. I, that's a choice I should have made Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh if the world knew me for one thing it would be uh my voice (laughs) check I'm most proud of helping other people find purpose and understanding in the energy and climate space in particular where they're using that information in vastly more impactful ways Hmm. last question to build a successful company what it takes is relentlessness in an unrelenting world Wow. Beautiful close to a really special interview. It means a lot to me that you did this. Thanks so much for being on the show and sharing everything that you did, Stephen. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Wow. We are officially done, but still folks are still here. Um, uh, folks obviously jump off if you need to. I always ask, uh, is there anything you wish we would have covered that we didn't? Anything you wish you would have said? No, I actually feel really good about it. I, I, if if there are questions from people, I'm happy to take those. It seemed like there were a few questions about like launching podcasts and stuff. So however you want to um, bring in other questions, I'm happy to yeah. do that. Yeah, let's do it. Let's see. Yeah, advice for wannabe podcasters in the regenerative ag space. Uh, I'm going to read a few of these and then we can kind of see where the okay. overlap is. Um, someone says you're definitely a dolphin. My wife oh, wait, says oh, he's sorry, definitely def- not, a not a dolphin. He doesn't like, doesn't swimming, like swimming in the, in the open ocean. ocean. Oh my god! I am that's terrified amazing. of the open ocean. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think a lot of these are quotes. So yeah, maybe 
I think you you already touched on this, but but want to be podcasters in general, but but I guess to this person specifically interested in ag tech. Well, the I I mean I want to echo some of the comments that I made earlier, which is the beauty of this medium is that there is a low barrier to entry, but that mm-hmm. can also be a real problem for people who just assume that. You can buy a couple USB microphones and you know that you have a good relationship with someone and you have some, you know, you both know a subject and like that will all this that will somehow make magic. Mm. Sometimes that works, you know, like some very successful podcasts are basically two people or even one person who knows a subject who can like make it very compelling. But Mm. the vast majority of the time it takes serious work into thinking about how you want to communicate, what your personality is, what the structure of the show looks like, how you're going to differentiate from other podcasts. Um, and that is, that's very serious work. And so I just implore anybody who is, who really wants to learn to, to do a new show, particularly in the energy climate space, which is booming. Like there are so many podcasts out there now in this space. And it's, it's really crucial to figure out like, what are you going to do different? And why are you the person to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a question I've always wondered, I've only ever seen you at this angle and the closet at this angle. Can you turn the, are you able to turn the camera? Like, can we see a door? Like, can you actually get out? Oh, yeah, out? there's a door right here. No, th- okay. there's a there's a room. It's like a bedroom next to me. And okay, okay. I'm going to keep all that private. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, um, but it is. Else? I'm covered in foam on the other side here. There's, oh, there's a sump pump on the other side of this wall. The sump pump. So, I'm so sorry, Catherine Hamilton. I promised I would ask about the sump pump, and I didn't. But now um, I am asking. Tell us about your sump pump. Well, during the, the shoulder seasons when that. we get a lot more, the sump pump was just, we, we have a drainage system around our basement because it's a finished basement. And the sump pump is just on the other side of this wall. We've tried to insulate it, but it's still pretty loud. During the shoulder seasons when we get a ton of rain, we'll be recording and sometimes every five minutes, the sump pump will come on. So there's always like, I'm in the middle of a sentence and then I'll finish that sentence by saying like, oh, my damn sump pump. And then I'll have some expletives and then we'll wait and then move Mm on. Uh, So that's that's a thing that happens here. But this summer we didn't have much rain. So I went months without ever hearing it. But um, we just had a big nor'easter come through here. So it's it's already gone off a couple of times during this conversation. (laughs) Oh, well, I haven't heard it, but you're the you're the audio uh, expert here. uh, Eric wants to know, it looks like you're standing up as am I. If so, uh, do you always do that? And is this how I should envision you while listening to the yes. energy gang? <laughs> yes. You can envision me exactly like this. <laughs> standing really. I feel like it's the way to go. Yes. Except for more hand waving, more totally. of this. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, yeah I've I'm listening to the sometimes. two of them. I'm doing yeah. this. I feel like most of the interview, often... you were kind of straight, straight ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when, when I'm listening to the dynamic between Catherine and Jigger, for example, I'm like, yeah, trying to figure it uh-huh. out, and I'm like, uh-huh. okay, what am I going to say next? So makes sense. Uh, but yes, this is this is my natural environment. <laughs> Do you ever get asked to join teams of you know startups, corporates, or people ever like, hey, you know, quit this podcast thing, just come be our like head of podcast brilliance? No, not recently, but I have over my career been asked to do some advisory work or to join the boards of of like organizations mm-hmm. and. Going back to the imposter syndrome, some of that happened mm. earlier in my career, and I was like, oh, no, like, mm. I do not feel equipped to do that. I'm still kind of learning this space, and um, I turned some things down a little bit earlier in my career mm. that 
I feel good about turning down. I think it was the right choice to make. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll get requests, but like I also, some of those requests are a little bit more research oriented. And I'm like, I'm not an analyst. Like mm-hmm. I'm not putting together numbers. I'm yeah. I'm the person interviewing the people who are putting together the spreadsheets. Yeah. And so uh, very often I feel like I'm not the right person for that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, yeah, so it's it's definitely happened. And for the most part, I tend to turn them down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What else? Anything else from the show that, yeah, you wish we would have covered or dove into more or, uh, yeah, any other thoughts on the recording? Um, Well, it sounded like, I'm just trying to think about, like, the podcast business. Um, We covered so much ground. I was doing my best to try to keep my my answers under a minute, too. So we covered. You did pretty good. You did pretty good. I only skipped a few. (laughs) But it was a what, nice, do you have any really that nice you skipped? Show. Ooh, now we're talking. Skipped? All right, this is good. Actually, I have some of the some of the high voltage round one. Uh, uh, when are you your best self? When I'm taking care of myself. I, I'm a dramatically different person. Mm. I mean, my brain feels completely different. Um, I'm a very happy person, by the way. So what mm. you're hearing behind the microphone is very much a mm. normal part of me. Like I'm not faking anything. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, that the, the, in my sort of day-to-day life, I am absolutely at my best self and I'm taking care of myself and I, my brain just feels completely different. Yeah. What is your worst trait? The inability to distinguish between the importance of tasks. And I've gotten Mm -hmm. better at that, but I will walk down into the kitchen and see that it's like messy or there's things Mm. out of place. And Mm -hmm. I know I have this big deadline coming up and the two of them feel equal to me. Like I'm in my brain, you know, or it it could be something completely inconsequential that could be done in an hour. And that still weight that still weighs on me in the same way as something that's like monumental. I, I can, I can relate. Uh, let's see other questions that I skipped. Oh yeah, I God, I kind of wish I would have asked that. I, um, you know, we talked about you know when if you failed or you've launched all these podcasts, they've had eleven million downloads with PostScript. Like, are you afraid of PostScript failing? Are you confident <clears throat> in its success? Yeah, I'm definitely confident in its success, but I'm the fa- failure would not be scaling when actually mm. i wouldn't even de- i wouldn't even de- ma- say that that's a failure i think failure would be not progressing in terms of story complexity budgets and visibility of shows that i know that we can get to mm-hmm. and so i don't really care if we have 100 employees or 10 employees like that to me isn't the important thing mm. it's getting to projects that have a vastly greater impact even more than what we're doing. And mm-hmm. so I feel like if we started to to flatline or we were taking on projects that weren't fulfilling or achieving some like important end, that that would be a failure. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, I, I want to grow a company that is successful and, you know, substantial, but I also don't have a fear of being a lifestyle entrepreneur either. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like if it was just me and I was taking on like certain projects, um, I think I'd be happy with that as long as the projects were the right things. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, to me, it's about the type of things we're taking on, not, not, not necessarily the scale. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, <clears throat> the scale of impact isn't necessarily correlated with the scale of the team or revenue. I think it's something that 
I've really loved and appreciated about powerhouses that our impact far outweighs our team size or, or annual revenue. Um, and, and both are growing consistently over time, but, um, but it's nice to, to be mentally disconnected from those two and know that they're not necessarily one in the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there's a good question in here about like poor media coverage, yeah, yeah. which is something that I rail on and have been frustrated <laughs> by for some time. Yeah. What are your um, thoughts there? Well, it depends on the kind of poor media coverage. There's a lot of different reasons for this. On the technical business side, it's still rare that you have journalists in mainstream publications who have a technical background or um, they might be you know, covering a completely different area of business and then have to go over into energy and environment. And um, I mean, there's some extraordinary journal- journalists out there. So... Um, I don't. I I do not want to make like sweeping generalizations, but there are a lot of people who cover energy and climate who may come from other beats, which mm-hmm. can be a little bit problematic in terms of getting the right language or understanding the potential of a particular technology. Um, I think that in the business to business world, the coverage can be poor for different reasons, which is like it's extremely boring. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not there's the the context is poor it can feel like a a a press release was rewritten and i think that's kind of damaging which is one of the things that brought me to green tech media in the first place because like Mm -hmm. they had a take like when Mm -hmm. eric wessoff was there as the editor-in-chief and (laughs) eric always had a take like oh man and he he (laughs) he angered a lot of people and but you know he was the he calls himself like the clean tech gadfly like Mm. he was really he brought this like searing like uh, uh, gumshoe uh, blogger kind of attitude to like understanding Silicon Valley. And he Mm -hmm. called out a lot of the hubris and called out a lot of the bad bets that people were making and was very like before the, like the pop of the clean tech bubble. I mean, he was years ahead of like the bad investments that people Mm -hmm. were making, or at least their strategic approach to making those investments. Mm -hmm. So I loved that kind of, of reporting. And I think that business to business journalism often, suffers because it doesn't do enough of that. Um, In the national press, which is something that we've talked about a lot on shows, I think that there's just a real need to contextualize climate issues and energy issues in a political framework. Mm -hmm. And so you have the meet the press model where you like, you have to get the Republican, you have to get the Democrat Mm -hmm. and you get the independent analyst and like it becomes, and then very rarely a scientist and it just becomes some, an extension of the existing political debate and it doesn't really move the ball forward. I'm Mm -hmm. so frustrated by that. And it really hasn't changed a whole lot. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you think it will with the, Incoming administration, the global shift in climate consciousness. In television, I don't know. Mm-hmm. In television, it hasn't really shifted that much. You see, if you compare mm-hmm. the number of minutes devoted to climate mm-hmm. change, they're the same as they were eight mm-hmm. years ago. I mean, it's terrible. Yeah. In print reporting, you've got a lot of publications, nonprofit publications that are coming up. I mean, ProPublica and Inside mm-hmm. Climate News are some of the best. Uh, and then, the, you know, the Times, the Post, the LA Times, um, they're all investing heavily in climate re- reporting and energy reporting. So it's getting a lot better in some of those mainstream newspapers. Mm-hmm. Um, but, in, you know, where most people get their news from television and they're doing a really, mm-hmm. really bad job of covering it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think long-term, is this your... Uh, is this the thread that will continue throughout the rest of your life? Like, do you think 
kind of podcasting in this world that you've helped to create is going to be the continuation of your journey? I think so. Yeah. And for a couple of reasons. I mean, when we started the company, when we started Postscript, one of the the reasons why I'm grappling with the mission of the company was that like, okay, I've been in the energy climate world for a long time. What are some other areas in tech and business that I want to focus on? Mm. And what I realized is that like we kept coming back to a lot of the the climate and energy stuff because it's so important and things are evolving so quickly and that's ultimately where we have a lot of connections and projects are getting built faster and we have collaborations that are a lot easier so I'm kind of reorienting around figuring out if like that's going to be just our true focus or if we're going to branch out into other areas on the podcasting side I mean there was a point where I thought like okay should I get into TV should I try to do a little bit more punditry and get my name out there but like I'm so disgusted by the way things are framed on television news and podcasting is such a refreshing change from the way we're inundated on social media, Mm. the way our attention is constantly being bifurcated, the way that people cover things in, 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 you know, broadcast news and cable, cable news. I mean, it's just like the, it's the sweet spot. And People love it for a reason. People stick around. If you have subscribers, Mm -hmm. like people stay with you. And if you build an audience in podcasting, they will be with you for a long time. So there was a point where I thought about maybe podcasting wasn't always going to be the thing, but now I do. Mm. I mean, it's, it's like the perfect medium for these crazy chaotic times. Agreed. Well, I'm really happy that you... Uh, launched Postscript and and have stuck with it as long as you have. And, and I'm personally, somewhat selfishly, extremely grateful as it relates to what it takes. And it's just been such an awesome journey over the past three years. And I'm really excited about where we're going with the the new version of what it takes. Oh, me too. I'm so excited to keep throwing ideas around. And here we go. Let's Let's rock it in 2021. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.